Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. It's hard to believe, at least for me it's hard to believe, April 2nd of 2005 saw the passing from this earth of John Paul II, St. John Paul II. I'll tell you, it, I can remember uh, I can remember it very well because uh, I was I stayed on the air uh, for I don't know how many hours straight if you recall there was almost what you would call a death watch we knew that he was very very ill and people were speculating that he was soon to pass this earth and so I just stayed on the air um, keeping people abreast of what was going on and during that time uh, I wish I could remember how many hours. I'd say at least 12 hours that I was on the air. I remember going over uh, John Paul II's life. I had his encyclicals with me. And, you know, you're always trying to come up with things to say. You have to fill time like that. And I was able to really get, in that kind of concentrated way, an overview of all that he had accomplished. I mean, published, for instance. That's the first place I begin. What has he written? and a tremendous amount of material. Then you look over his uh, history, of course, uh, his, the way he lived uh, under, Nazi, uh, under you know, the Nazis, under the communists, the liberation of Poland. Uh, you can take a look at his championing of religious liberty. And it, I, was, I was blown away by how much he had actually accomplished. Now, some of you may have already felt that before his death, but it was in that concentrated period of roughly 12 hours of watching uh, him die that it really hit me how remarkable and productive a man he had been. Well, I'm glad to say that uh, longtime friend Patrick Novikowski has put together a wonderful book called 100 Ways John Paul II Has Changed the World. Patrick's a media relations professional living in Florida with his wife and five children. And uh, Patrick, good to have you here. Thanks. Be with you. It's been a few years. It has been. Uh, I was just amazed at the scope of John Paul II's life. And uh, you have 101 ways in which you changed the world here. It must have been. Did you? Are these in in any kind of order, or are they just 101? I mean, do you have a number one? Is like a countdown to number one? <laughs> well, the trick thing is 101, because you're getting 100 plus a bonus <laughs> more. But uh, I, I only limited it to 100 because it, it, it's in commemoration of his 100th birthday, the centenary sure. of his birth. That's right. So uh, the, the, the first 90 are not really in order. They're, they're more of a, a flow. I started at 100 with Religious Liberty and kind of flowed from there and tried to make the, the book, at least those first 90, kind of be a cohesive theme. Uh, but I did rank the top 10. So okay. how this started was uh, I met John Paul II five times prior to, to working for Legatus and Ave Maria University, uh, back when I worked for the National Shrine of Divine Mercy and the Marian Helpers in Stockbridge. Um, met him five times, so I'd been giving a talk for some years about how I met him and how God used me to, to um, you know, talk about John Paul II. Yeah. And then in that talk, I came up with his top ten gifts to the world, top ten gifts to the Church. Um, and, and, I, and I developed the ideas of, of what were really the nuggets of this 26-and-a-half-year papacy and, and ranked them in order, and I ran them by 
people like George Weigel and other scholars that had written about John Paul II got their feedback and kind of uh, sifted through to, to really get the best of John Paul. But when it came time to writing the book, there, there really wasn't enough there. But I recognized that his 100th birthday was coming up in May of 2020. So that, that's where the idea for 100 Ways He Changed the World came up. Very good. Uh, you mentioned him five times. How many, you say five times you encountered him? Five times, yeah. Yeah, tell, tell me a little bit about that. What were the circumstances? Well, so uh, I, I, I was born and raised in Canada. I came to the United States in 1996, worked for U Magazine in Southern California mm-hmm. for about a year. And then in the fall of 96, I moved to Stockbridge and worked for the Marian Helpers in the National Shrine of Divine Mercy. And I'd only been there a few months, and they had this employee raffle at Christmas. And the grand prize, this is back in the 90s when people didn't book their their travel online, you went through a travel agent. Mm-hmm. The travel agent gave the grand prize, and the grand prize was a trip for two to Cancun, Mexico. And who won <laughs> but the new kid? I was 27, and I won the trip to Cancun, and there were people working there 30 years looking at me and go, who's this new kid? He must have horseshoes. So I won the grand prize, but I didn't want to go to Cancun. I really, really desired to go to Rome, because that's where our church was, was, was born, and that's where the Pope is. And so I, I, the travel agent swapped it out. I went to Rome in the fall of 96. And the Marians, of course, have a, a house in Rome, and uh, they said, well, I was a single man at the time, they said, well, why don't you stay at our house and do some work for us? I was, uh, I was writing, I was associate editor of the Marian Helper magazine, and John Paul had asked the Marians to help the re-evangelization of Eastern Europe after the fall of communism. And so they sent this cub reporter out to the countries of Eastern Europe to write about the, their needs there, and um, and my first stop was Rome. And they said, well, while you're in Rome, would you like to meet the Pope? And I said, well, do you need to ask? <laughs> if there's a list, just put me on the list. Yeah. So so I, I prayed to St. Therese because I had have a great devotion to her. She went to Rome. She met the Pope. So I said, Therese, come on, put in a good word for me. You met the Pope. And lo and behold, I met John Paul II on October 1st, 1997. Just happened to be her feast day. Mm. And, and not only that, but the day before the prayer, when the day the prayer was answered, the day the call came in, was September 30th, 1997, which was the centenary of her death. Wow. So, so I owe wow. great debt to St. Therese for, for yeah. her intercession for starting this whole thing off for me. Yeah, I think it was William Temple who said, you know, when I pray, coincidences happen. When I don't pray, they don't happen. So, Amen. <laughs> these, are, these are clearly uh, answers to prayer. Uh, how, um, what was his uh, health like at that time when you met him? In 97, he, you know, he had broken his leg in 94, I think it was. And his physical health started to decline slowly over the years after that. The first time I met him, he looked tanned, he looked healthy, he walked without any assistance. Uh, I went back in 98, and, and he looked less well. 
Yeah. He looked, he looked tired. You see that. He, uh, so the first time that I met him in 97, he walked around the room. He greeted each person. 98, he leaned up against the door jam. Uh, I saw him in Poland in 97 on a papal visit to Poland. He, he walked around pretty well. But by, by 2000, when I met him, he wasn't walking. He was in a chair. Um, and, and each person kind of just came up to him individually. And the last time I saw him was actually almost 18 years ago today. Um, tomorrow, I think, 17th. So a couple of days from now will be the 18th anniversary of the, the last time I saw him, which was on my honeymoon. Uh, he, he would bless newlyweds in yes, where yes. In, in his general audience. And uh, Michelle and I, my wife, we were married 11 days, married oh. to Christ the King in Ann Arbor, right yep, beside yep. you. And, uh, and we, we flew to Rome, and we got blessed by the Pope, and uh, that began the rest of our lives. You know, it's amazing uh, how quickly time passes. Um, Amen. I, actually, I remember when you were single. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, All right. It doesn't seem like that long ago. No. Well, let's let's go over some of these uh, of the hundred ways in which John Paul II changed the world. Why don't you start with uh, what we might be most surprised by? Yeah, um, you know, most people don't know the impact he had on Africa. That was one that really, really surprised me. He went to about two thirds to three quarters of the countries in Africa. He visited. He 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 had a, a special. Um, Synod on Africa and mm-hmm. wrote a, a, a document, Ecclesia in Africa, which had a profound impact on, on the whole continent. Um, I really believe that, that, I mean, we see all the vocations coming out of Africa. We see how the church is alive in Africa. John Paul appointed Africans to some of the highest places in, in the Curia in Rome. He, uh, he expanded the, the College of Cardinals and included many Africans. And, and because of his travels, because of his passion for the, the faith and spreading that to Africa, I really believe that a lot of the fruit that's coming out of Africa today is because of his work. And so that, that's something that we didn't hear a lot about. We'd hear that, you know, he's on another trip because he made 104 trips outside of, uh, outside of Italy um, and traveled. Basically, if you would add up all of his air miles, he went around the world 30 times. <laughs> so he he was busy, and and you know we're, we're very American centric with the news that we get here, even from sure. the Catholic press. But um, he had a profound impact on Africa, so that was one. Um, did, did he? Did he? Did he? Did he appoint Cardinal? Did he appoint Cardinal Lorenzi? I believe he did. I yeah. believe he did. Yeah. Wow. So he he had a profound effect on Africa. Were there other geographic locations that he had, that he had special impact on? Yeah, China and and Russia are, are the two that that he had a special attention to. I think China because of course the, the the communist government in China and the restrictions on the spread of the faith and the practice of the faith. But every time he he had a, a great diplomatic outreach to China, and. Uh, he also, every time he got close to China, he would broadcast messages into China through the radio from neighboring countries, a uh, special message for the, the Chinese people. So, uh, he, you know, the diplomacy and the, the faith outreach and, and really supporting the, 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 the faithful in, in China the best he could with the restrictions that were in place. Um, 
Also with, with Russia, I think one of the greatest disappointments of his papacy was that he wasn't able to make an apostolic journey to, to Russia. Right. And it wasn't because the government didn't want him. Uh, both Boris Yeltsin and, um, oh, I forget his name, the, uh, the other uh, leader of Russia, Gorbachev, mm-hmm. both invited him to come to Russia. But he, he felt he couldn't if there was an impediment from the Russian Orthodox right. uh, patriarch. Right. And and so he he held back making that trip out of wanting to to really um, have good relationship with the Orthodox because that was for him that was really important the the um, the ecumen- ecumenical outreach. Yeah. he was hoping he was hoping to restore full communion uh, at the beginning Absolutely, of his papacy. Yeah. yeah, and he was unable to do that uh, in spite of his uh, outreach to the Russian Orthodox. Patrick, hold it there, come back on the other side, and continue looking at 100 ways John Paul II changed the world. Patrick Novikowski, the author, my guest. I'm Al Cresta. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Looking over uh, 100 ways John Paul II changed the world. My guest, Patrick Novikowski, is the author of a book by that name, 100 Ways John Paul II Has Changed the World. And we've been just going over a few of them, his, uh, the importance of his visits to Africa, the frustration he felt at not being able to uh, get to Russia or to uh, establish better ecumenical relations with the uh, Russian Orthodox and the Eastern Orthodox in general. Uh, one of the things that people often talk about, Patrick, uh, in, in terms of John Paul II's influence, has been his influence on vocations. And you hear people use the phrase, we have a generation of John Paul II priests now. Uh, was he very uh, effective and successful at, at generating? Yeah. Were, were the numbers good? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, I, I don't recall at this point the numbers, but I know that the men who call themselves JP2 priests were inspired by his passion for the faith, his commitment, his focus on Jesus Christ and the Eucharist and, and Our Lady, and and his, his focus on vocations, his attention to priests. Um, yeah. You know, they always say that if a bishop has a, a, a special focus on vocations and it's one of his passions... That, that God will provide the priests. And, and yeah. he, he did that, especially, you know, under John Paul II. I think people saw a heroism in John Paul II. They saw uh, that, that he was unafraid, that he was, he was changing the world. I mean, if you lived in the 80s, uh, beginning of the 1980s, uh, everyone lived in fear of, of World War III, of, of bombs falling mm-hmm. between the United States and, and the USSR. And by the end of the 80s, that was no longer a concern, primarily because of John Paul II and Ronald Reagan and their collaboration to to bring down communism without a a shot being fired. Communism, at least in Eastern Europe. Uh, Coupled with that, uh, he was was an opponent of liberation theology, too. And I remember remember, uh, the very famous picture of him chastising uh, Father Ernesto uh, Cardinal Martinez uh, because of his yes. involvement with the uh, with the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. 
Uh, yeah, that, and that was uh, on the tarmac in Nicaragua yeah. in the early 80s during one of his visits. And, and Father Ernesto just, uh, just went to his reward with, with, with the mm-hmm. Lord just uh, like last month. Yeah. What, uh, tell me a little bit about his uh, opposition to liberation theology. Well, liberation theology, um, and, I, and I'm no expert in it, but it, it sees Jesus as a conquering hero by force, and and they they mix it with with Marxism and come up with this idea that it's okay to liberate a nation by force by taking up arms against a, uh, a tyrant and. And John Paul was firmly against that. He saw the errors of communism and Marxism. Uh, he lived that experience with the, the communist takeover of Poland, and then uh, sorry, the Nazi takeover of Poland uh, in his youth, and then the the occupation of Poland by the, the communists in his later years as a priest and, and bishop, and then pope. Um, so he he was very clear with with priests, particularly in in Latin America, that this was not the way. To change the world, this was the way to continue conflict, and mm-hmm. and he was very firm uh, with with priests and bishops that um, you know this was the wrong direction. Yeah, uh, he was a. You also have a, a section here about his stand against socialism. So this was a very consistent approach. Uh, he did not like Marxist-centered uh, social uh, movements. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, he saw socialism, again, as a flawed ideology. Uh, he, he, he had lived under socialism, you know, in, in Poland as a young man, and he understood how it corrupted the working class. Um, he also pointed to Leo XIII as a prophetic voice. Uh, you know, the 100th anniversary of Leo's uh, Rerum Novarum, uh, John Paul reiterated the Catholic condemnation of socialism. Right, um, right. He just saw that it was... Um, a corruption of of philosophy and theology, and, and uh, particularly philosophy, um, and that it was it was just an errant philosophy. Right, right. He also opposed unfettered capitalism too. Uh, in, yeah, know. absolutely. So you know, it's that, that, always um, good to bring that you up. Know, ultimately, so economics is having to be in service to the human person, right, and the flourishing yeah. of the human person. And when there were, were the capitalism without without control, without uh, the common good being in, kept in mind, that 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 was also an errant philosophy. And uh, he, he was very clear, particularly with the United States, that because the United States was a world economic leader, it also needed to be a leader in, in freedom and, and economic justice. Uh, tell me, I've met a few people who served him as Swiss guards. Uh, I noticed that you have that here, too, that he had special care for the Swiss guards. Yeah. Tell me about that. Yeah, I think you, you and I know some of the same people, Mary yeah. Lindsler and, and yes. Widmer. That's uh, right. That's that, right. I guess that, we do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they were, uh, he, he was like a father to them. I mean, the Swiss guard, people have to understand, these are, are young Catholic men who are, are most of them away from home for the first time, and many of them have to, are, are deprived of, of going home for the holidays and being in contact with their families. And, and he saw that in them. He understood that this was a sacrifice. I mean, it was a, it was a privilege uh, because they were among the elite uh, of their country. It was a, a great honor to serve 
the Pope and protect the Pope, but that it also came with sacrifice. And so he was like a father to them, a father figure. And, and he, I think he took particular care in, in paying attention to these men and challenging them uh, not only to be in Rome for their year or years of service uh, as, as soldiers, but yeah. also that this was a time to sharpen their spiritual life. And um, so he challenged them in that way, but he was also there as, as like a father figure for them. We've been going over some of the things that might surprise people. Let's go to those top ten, though, that you have. Uh, number yeah. ten, he renewed number devotion 10. to the Blessed Mother. Yeah, I mean, he, he, he told us to us was his motto, not only as Pope, but it was his motto as, as a bishop. He became a bishop in 1958, and he took that as his motto. He lost his mother. She died when he was nine, about nine years old. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it left a, a, a wound in him, a, a hole. And his father said to him, now Our Lady is your mother. And, and I think it was like our Lord giving Mary to, to St. John uh, at the foot of the cross. It was like John Paul's father saying, here is your mother. Yeah. And, and he, uh, he, he had a great devotion to Mary, as, as most people that study him know. And um, so uh, he wrote an encyclical on, on Mary in 1987 and declared a Marian year in 1987 as well. And, and a letter on the rosary, uh, again, in, in my top ten, is the Luminous Mysteries, which he presented to the Church as, he didn't impose this on the Church, he, he said, it seems to me that there's a gap here. And mm-hmm. then he said, he wrote this letter, and he said, what do you think? And the faithful just took it and ran with it. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought the addition of the Luminous Mysteries was great. Uh, I've said before, and many others have too, that he and Cardinal Ratzinger uh, really worked hard to give a proper understanding to the Second Vatican Council. And I notice you have that in your top ten as well. Uh, tell me a little yeah, bit more. Yeah, no question. Uh, you know, there, there was a, a lot of confusion uh, during and after the Council. I think Paul VI was kind of overwhelmed with uh, the response, and it was not um, unpacked well. Uh, you know, it came in the midst right. of a, a global uh, revolution, sexual revolution, the change in society. Everything was changing so rapidly in the culture and society that, um, you know, it was, it was a very difficult time to, to present change in the Church as well, even though the change was necessary and overdue. So John Paul was one of the youngest bishops at the beginning of the council in 1962, um, but by the end of the council, he was one of the, 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 the bishops who had made the, the greatest impact on the council and his teachings. And as he began his papacy, just a, f- a few years after the council ended, um, he really saw that as, as his, his job to unpack the council. So in virtually every talk that he gave and every document that he wrote, he referred back to the council in a way that would say, this, this is part of what the council fathers intended for the church. Mm-hmm. I suppose that was also the impetus then behind the catechism. Yes, yes. So um, the catechism came out of uh, an ecumenical council that, that marked, I think it was the 10th anniversary of the end of the council, might have been the 15th, uh, 1980 or so, so uh, maybe the 12th. So, uh, but it was one of the recommendations of this this uh, synod. Of, uh, sorry, a synod of bishops that recommended a new universal catechism. There hadn't been one since the Council of Trent. 
Yeah. And uh, th- so that was the Roman Catechism. And uh, a lot of the, the critics said, well, the, that's, it's old-fashioned, we don't need a catechism. Right. Uh, but John Paul pursued it very vigorously, put Cardinal Ratzinger in charge. And the catechism was published in 1992. It, it became a, a worldwide bestseller to the, the critics' chagrin. And is one of the most influential, uh, even one of the best-selling Catholic books, even today, in the year 2020, decades after it was first published. Well, I remember a theological advisor to a major diocese in the United States telling me, uh, I was new to the church at that time, Uh, I came into full communion in 1992, so there was all talk about the catechism, and then in English, I think it was 1994 that we got it, but I can remember this uh, theological advisor for a particular diocese telling me that, well, you know, it's no big thing. Uh, I'm not sure that we even need a catechism. So there definitely were people in operation, even in high places in dioceses, who didn't think the catechism was a good idea. Um, We've got about two minutes left, and I must get you to the Theology of the Body, number three on your list. Yeah, theology of the body. Um, George Weigel said that that it's uh, it's like a theological time bomb that's set to go off sometime after John Paul II leaves the stage. I mean, first major teaching of John Paul's pontificate was theology of the body. It kind of grew out of his his experience as a, as a priest in Poland. His book Love and Responsibility, published in 1960, kind of thing, and, and it's so timely because there's so much confusion around sexuality in the church in in the culture. I should say. Um, so, very important teaching, but let me also emphasize divine mercy, because he had a huge hand in authenticating the, the message that Jesus gave Faustina in the 1930s mm-hmm. during her vision. Um, I was actually in St. Peter's Square at Faustina's canonization when he said the second Sunday of Easter shall henceforth be known as Divine Mercy Sunday. Yeah. So, huge, <laughs> hugely important. And, and Number one? Number one. It, number one is the new evangelization. Yeah. And simply because this, Paul VI said the Church exists to evangelize. John Paul saw that you know, the Church needs to be bringing the message of Jesus Christ, the, the, the great commission that Jesus gave his disciples when he, when, when he ascended into heaven. That is the prime uh, mission of the Church, to, to bring people into right relationship with Jesus Christ. So all of this stuff that John Paul did was geared toward the new evangelization, To uh, whether it was World Youth Day, Theology of the Body, uh, the Rosary, Devotion to Mary, all of that points to Jesus Christ. Yeah. What a fruitful life. You know, this was a yeah. man of great consequence. And thank you for this uh, book. Is it published yet? Yes, it's available okay. on Kindle right now. Uh, look for, for 100 Ways John Paul II Changed the World. The paperback will be out in October in time for John Paul's feast day, October 22nd. All right. 100 Ways John Paul II Changed the World. Patrick Novakowski. Patrick, great talking with you again. Thanks. Likewise, my friend. Bye-bye.